All right. All right, well, good morning, Mercy Fellowship. Hope you're doing well this morning. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Curtis, associate pastor here at the church. And uh, yeah, honored to be preaching this morning on love, as it's already been said. If you've got a Bible, 1 John chapter 4 is where we're going to be, starting in verse 7. And, uh, and the way things have been going lately, if you've been here for a few weeks, is this. Uh, Chris will be preaching, and I'll be gone, and then I'll be preaching, and Chris is gone. And it's not because we hate each other, although I'm sure I make him upset from time to time. Uh, it's more so actually just because we're covering a pulpit at a church in Burlington. And so I was there last week, Chris is there this week, and then it's going to be the same thing for the next few weeks. I'll be over there next week as well. And so yeah, if you've got a Bible, 1 John chapter 4 is where we're going to be. We are in this holiday series, Advent, which means arrival, and we are working our way towards Christmas Eve, December 24th, where we celebrate Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we are celebrating God entering into human history through the person of Jesus Christ. And, and the idea that, that we've been playing with as far as the slogan for this series is this, greater words are pointing us towards a greater God. So this morning, church, we, uh, uh, we're going to be talking about love, but let me just start off with just kind of this premise. Every Sunday, church, every Sunday, you come in and we gather, we open God's word, and we do so because we believe that God has something to say to us through his word. And, and it becomes a failure for us if we ever get to the place where we think God doesn't have anything to say to us or God doesn't care about anything that we care about. Nothing could be further from the truth. If you open up your Bible at all, you'll see that, that God talks about finances a whole lot. God cares about money. I'm sure you care about money as well. Uh, when we open up your Bible, you're going to see that God talks about your relationship to him, which is the ultimate thing in your life. And if you open up your Bible at all, you're also going to see your relationship with one another and what God thinks about that. And let me just go ahead and pose this question to you this morning as far as our relationships with one another. Uh, how do you navigate hard relationships? Right? How, how does it work for you when you're in a relationship with someone or you're friends with someone and, and it's hard to actually agree with them, you disagree with them a lot? Or it's hard to be around them, you know? You might have a person in your mind that's floating around thinking about this, right? And the undeniable answer that we get from the New Testament is, well, how do we treat people like this is love. But in the words of Hathaway, what is love, right? What is love? How, how, how do we express our love to one another, and particularly even with people that we disagree with and people in the household of God that we don't get along with? So we're going to hop right into it because we've got a lot to cover today. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And the apostle, he says this, he says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We'll go ahead and start there this morning. Um, I'm sure you've probably seen it before, but there's a lot of, uh, of yard signs in Seattle. And they're coming out kind of more so in, in just broader western Washington as well. And these yard signs they have, they're, they're creeds. And creeds are just a statement of what you believe. And so I'm sure you've seen them before, but they're in people's yards, and it says, in this house or in this home, we believe, dot, 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 and it has a, a list of facts. In this home, we believe, it usually says, black lives matter. In this home, we believe women's rights are, are human rights. In this home, we believe science is real because the rest of us don't, apparently. And in this home, it says, love is love. Now, what does that mean, actually, right? Like, what, what is love? Well, love is love, right? Well, well, what is a woman? A woman is a woman, right? 
It's the same argument. Does it mean that love is obvious and you'll know it when you see it? That might be it. Does it mean that you're able to love whoever and whatever you want? I think it's probably more so that second one out of the two. But let me say this to you, all of us, church. As followers of Jesus, the reality for us is this. We do not allow ourselves the privilege of redefining words if they've already been defined clearly in God's word. Amen? We do not redefine words just for our own gain. No, God defines words for us. He defines a few of them. And in this section right here from the Apostle John, you don't see love is love. No, you see rather God is love. And what does that mean? Well, in this section, church, it means this. It means I don't have to go looking out into the world to get an idea of what love is. However good other people's relationships might be and their love for one another might be, I don't need to go out into the world to go find that. Rather, the purest and the most perfect place of where I can see what love looks like and what, how love is demonstrated is in God. And as I see God, I get a clear picture of what love is. First thing from this section, church, is this. God is love. God defines what love is for us. But the second thing we see from these verses is this. Love has an aim. It's not just me and Jesus, and then I don't really care about the rest of you. It's not just me and God, and we we have this great relationship, and it's just void of any interactions with any of you. No, rather... He says this, we are to love one another. This is significant for this reason, church. The Apostle John, he's writing to a group of home churches. And he's writing to these groups of home churches, and and they've been through it a little bit. Uh, They've been doing life with people, and then people are leaving because they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God anymore. That's always heartbreaking when that happens, when people leave because they don't believe in God anymore. On top of that, they've got people that are coming in and they're, they're pseudo-apostles and they're pretending to come to apostles and, as apostles and, and they're asking for money. Hey, would you fund my ministry? And, and the Apostle John ends up calling them deceivers. And so in this section here, the Apostle John is writing to them and he's letting them know, hey, hey what are the marks of a, of a true follower of Jesus? What does a true Christian look like? And there's a lot of different things that he covers in this letter, but one of them of which we are looking at today is this. A true Christian is one who has love for one another. That's what a Christian is. Love is defined by God. Secondly, our love has an aim. And I think a question we could all ask at this point is this. Can we know this love? Is this just a nice theoretical idea that's kind of floating in the atmosphere? Can we actually know this love, experience this love, understand this love? And I think the answer to that is in these next few verses. Continuing on, verses 9 through 12. John says this, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved, God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, church, and we're going to look at it in a minute. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God can be known, church. God can be known. First thing I want us to get from this section is this. God's love has been made known to us through his incarnation. 
right? This is what we're celebrating this season. It is that God has revealed himself to us by sending his son. And, And this word Emmanuel, which is a title that's given to Jesus, means this, God with us. And we celebrate in this season that God has revealed himself. God has made himself known to us. This is, church, I've shared it before, but this is, this is part of my story, but I hope it's part of your story as well, that, that, that you not only know God, but you're known by him. That's what we're talking about here. I was a 17-year-old kid in youth group. I went to youth group because they had barbecue and skateboard ramps, and they got me. It worked. I ended up converting, and, uh, and I ended up joining the team. But I remember my youth pastor talking about this, though, and he was talking about his relationship with God and how it surpassed every other relationship he had in life. And when he was talking, there was something that just burned inside of me where I was thinking, oh man, I want that. And I didn't have language for it at the time, church, but what he communicated to me, and I didn't recognize was this. He communicated, I could know God, and in turn, I could be known by him. That's my story. I hope that's your story too, that that you wanted to know who God is, that in fact, you can know who God is, and in turn, you can be known by who God is. Here's what this means for us, though, church. It means this. We're not deists, okay? We don't believe in some supreme maker, some supreme being who went ahead and made everything, but we can never know about him because he stepped away from uh, the human race. And then we can just speculate for the rest of our days. We get into stuffy rooms and we try to debate about it, but we'll never truly know. No, that's not who we are. We are not deists. We're Christians. We believe that God has revealed himself to us. In fact, the writer of Hebrews, one of the books in the New Testament, he says this. He starts off his letter with saying this. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. All right? God's revealed himself to the fathers of the faith. God's spoken to us through his prophets. Okay? God's shown himself to us. Continuing on. Verse 2, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. This morning, Mercy Fellowship, you want to know God? Know Jesus. Jesus is the exact imprint of his nature. Has God revealed himself to us, church? Yes, he's revealed himself to us. Can God be known this morning, church? Yes, God can be known. Mercy Fellowship, do you know God this morning? Do you know this God this morning? There's two ways that theologians talk about how God has revealed himself to us that I want to give to you this morning. Number one is general revelation. Number two is special revelation. We'll go ahead and talk about this. General revelation, it means that God has revealed himself through creation. All right, so the Apostle Paul, he says this at the beginning of his book in Romans. He says that God has revealed himself in creation, and we can know about God, okay? And the reality of this is really beautiful. This allows the most remote tribe for people who have never seen a city, who have never fled their village, as well as the most learned man in a city with a lot of degrees and doctorates to both look at creation, see the beauty of it, and be filled with wonder and excitement for whoever the creator of all this is. Um, A few years ago, um, 
There's a group of guys from us uh, here at the church that hiked the enchantments, and it's over in Leavenworth, and, uh, and it's about 20 to 23 miles. I'm bragging because I did all 20 to 23 miles, and I, I don't hike at all, and so I was pretty happy about it. Uh, but we went ahead and we did this long hike, 12 plus hours, and it was worth every minute of it. And it's called the enchantments for a reason. It is spectacular. It is awe-inspiring. By definition, church, it is awesome. And as you're going up and through all these, these hikes and onto these mountain peaks, you have these just glorious views of just valleys upon valleys upon valleys. You have lakes that are made up of just glacier water, and they're the purest and cleanest things you've ever seen in your life. And when you look at this and you go through all of this, there's just this, this filling up inside of you where you're like thinking, wow, I am incredibly small. And whoever made this is really big, really amazing, really wonderful. What it does, church, is it fills you with gratitude for the maker of everything. And so through general revelation, through creation, you can know about God. But in order to know God fully, we need special revelation. Special revelation is this, church. God's given us his word. And what does that mean? Well, it means that that God's revealed himself to us in Jesus, the word of God. That's how John starts his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He's revealed Jesus to us. But how do you know who Jesus is? You know Jesus by this word. You gotta open this word to understand who Jesus is. Right? We don't just go ahead, church, and just kind of create a Jesus that's a figment of our imagination. No, Jesus was a real person in a real time, in a real place, about 2,000 years ago. And I want to know that Jesus because that's the one that God became man. I want to understand who that Jesus is. God can be known, church, through general revelation and special revelation. So number one, God's love has been made manifest to us through his incarnation, coming as a baby. Number two, though, God's love has been made manifest to us through his sacrifice. Here's what I mean by that. We already, I highlighted the word propitiation, but let me read that verse again. Verse 10, it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That word, church, it means not only sacrifice for sins, but it also means the appeasing of God's wrath. And so let's unpack this a little bit, okay? I want to be careful with you this morning, church, and we'll walk through this together and we'll walk slowly because people have taken this and they've really abused it. They've really twisted it and it's resulted in bad theology and bad church culture and all that stuff. So let's just walk through this really slowly as far as uh, sacrifice and appeasing of God's wrath. It's a huge failure for us. Just let me start with this. I believe it's a huge failure for us as evangelicals, and particularly even as Protestant Christians, where all we do on Sundays is talk about love and talk about love and talk about God's love, and it should be talked about and emphasized. Yes and amen to all of that. But we often forget that God has other emotions. The Bible talks about God. It talks about God being angry. In the Bible, it talks about God being wrathful. Filled. Psalm 5, it talks about God hates. And so we need to be careful as we tread through this to not just create a God who's all love, who's all fairy tales, who's, who's all nice. No, this God has real emotions, just like you and me. Now, I need to be careful when I say this, though, okay? J.I. Packer, he wrote a book called Knowing God. If you haven't read it, I encourage you to read it. 
And he says this. He says, God's love is not like our love. Amen? God's love is not like our love. If God's love was like our love, we'd all be done for. It wouldn't be good. Our love, church, is flippant. Our love is ebbing and flowing. God's love is constant. God's love is immovable. And praise be to God for that. It's a wonderful thing. God's love is not like our love. In the same way that God's love is not like our love, God's wrath is not like our wrath. Our wrath, church, is often erratic. Our wrath is often misguided and miscalculated. Not God's, though. God's wrath, it is, it is perfect in his judgments. God's wrath, it is always right and justified in what it goes after. Uh, furthermore, let me say this when it comes to the Bible. The Bible talks about God as love, and it never talks about God saying God is wrath, okay? God is love. That's what we're talking about today. It never says God is wrath. It says rather that God is provoked to wrath, okay? That's a difference of identity right there, if you're tracking with me on this. God is provoked to wrath. And so we need to talk about this, church. Why, in this section of love, why talking about love this morning is John bringing up the wrath of God? And I think you and me understand this a little better than we, than we, uh, than we might actually initially understand it. Here's the reality, church. If someone is coming to your home and they break into your house and they're seeking to harm you or your spouse or your kids, you're not shaking their hand when they come in. No, rather, your blood pressure is going to spike, you're going to be filled with wrath, and you're going to seek to destroy them. Why are you filled with wrath? Because of how much you love your family, that's why. I want you to see, church, how these are connected. It's in the same line of thought like that, church, that, that, that God is filled with wrath because there's things that, that, that ruin us. There's things that break us. There's things that destroy us. That's called sin. Sin separates us from God. And the reality this morning, church, is this. Wrath must be poured out on sin to cover sin. And it will either be on your last day, in your last breath, where your blood is spilled, or you can place your faith in Jesus and his blood spilled on your behalf. Those are our two options this morning. And you might say, well, Curtis, why can't God just forgive? Why does there have to be wrath involved? Because he wouldn't be just if he didn't. He wouldn't be just if he didn't do that. Let me give you another analogy. It's not a perfect one. I hope it helps, though, at least just trying to help understand this. Um, as a young kid growing up in a cul-de-sac with some friends, we all had bikes, and we'd, we'd bike around together and had a fun posse. And, and there was one driveway that a homeowner had that was really steep. And if you went to the top of it and rode down, you'd pick up a lot of speed, and you go and you try to curve uh, to the right onto the curb, and you could get going pretty quick. And so a lot of us kids did that. And it was at the homeowner's house, and he had uh, parked his car right by that curb, um, in front of his home. And so one time I'm, I'm going down that hill and I'm, I'm trying to turn right and I don't turn right quick enough and I hit the back of the guy's truck. The truck wins, I fall over, uh, but I leave a pretty good dent on the back of this guy's truck. And so I go and I tell my dad and we go over to the homeowner and I apologize to the homeowner and my dad says, hey, uh, we'll go ahead and cover the cost. And the homeowner was really gracious. And he says, no, that's okay. He says, I'll go ahead and, and, and pay for it. You, you don't have to worry about it. Now, church, when, when the homeowner forgave me, did that dent go away? No. That dent didn't go away. Rather, that homeowner, out of his own pocket, paid for that debt and paid for that mess. And here's what I'm saying to you this morning, church. God loves you so much that he paid out of his own pocket for your sins. That he sent his one and only son for you and for your sins so that the wrath of God might be put on Jesus rather than on you. 
That's what we're talking about today. And so, let me say this, church. God loves you so much that he went out of his own pocket for his sins. Did God send his only son? Yes, he did. Was Jesus willing to go to the cross for you and me, though? Yes, absolutely. Look at this verse. It should be on the screen. John 15. Jesus is saying this. And he says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. It's exactly what we're talking about today. In verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. And he goes on to continue to say, and you are indeed my friends. Right? Jesus willingly laid down his life. Why? Because he loves you, church. That's why. He did this of his own accord. This morning, Mercy Fellowship, do you know that God loves you? Do you know that God loves you? God's love has been made manifest to us. It's been made known to us, not only through his incarnation and through his sacrifice for our sins. And let me say this. I think in, if you've been in church a long time or in your life, uh, you've heard God's love talked about probably every Sunday. And it's really easy for you and for me to gather this morning and go ahead and just talk about God's love and it goes in one ear and out the other. And what John is going to talk to us in a moment here about is rather than just hearing about God's love, making a mental ascent to it that we agree and then moving on, rather than doing that, we actually need to go deeper into this reality that God loves for us. This is what he says in 1 John 4, 13 through 18. He says this, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe that love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Verse 17, by this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. Verse 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. If you noticed it, it was kind of repetitive in those few verses where, where John brings up the word abide roughly five times in that section. And the, the word abide, it means this. It means to communicate endurance. It means to communicate remaining in place is what it's trying to say. And so how do we abide in God? How do we abide in this love, right? We're talking about being known by God and knowing God. How do we do this? I believe, church, there's five gifts that God has given us as his people for helping us abide in him. And I want to give those to you this morning. Number one is this, prayer. Prayer, if you don't know it this morning, is this. It's the way we communicate to God. In fact, a fun way to think about this is this, church. And I've been studying church history lately, so forgive me if I geek out. But with church history, though, most of church history, people are illiterate. On top of that, the printing press didn't even come out until the late 1400s. And so what you had were people that were going to church. They didn't carry an ESV Bible with the Old and New Testament. That didn't exist. They didn't have a Bible they were bringing with them to church. Rather, what they would do is they'd go to church. They would hear the word proclaimed by their priest or their bishop. And then how would they respond? How would they have a relationship with God? Through prayer. Through prayer. 
Prayer is the means, church, by which we communicate with God, by means by which we have a relationship with God. In fact, uh, there's two guys I like to highlight with this idea of prayer. George Whitfield, uh, he's an old uh, evangelist in the 1700s, and on a sermon on prayer, he exclaims this, Oh, prayer, prayer, it is that which brings God to man and man back to God. It's a beautiful picture, right? Brings you and God together through prayer. J.C. Ryle, my favorite dead preacher, first bishop in Liverpool in the 1800s, and he wrote a little booklet on prayer. And he says this, he says, God has no silent children, therefore you must pray. Mercy Fellowship, would you give it to me this morning that prayer's important? Would you give that to me? How we abide in Christ this morning is through prayer. One of the ways we do, church, is through prayer, let me say. So let me ask you, this parents, you parents this morning, do you pray with your kids? Do you pray with your kids, perhaps before a meal, perhaps before they go to sleep? You spouses, do you pray together? Do you get to pray with one another? Do these opportunities arise? Church family, when, when someone comes in our midst and they're suffering and in pain or they're, they're going through something, do you pray for them? Do you have an opportunity to pray for them? We're talking about not only the love of God, but loving one another, and this is a way, church, of which we can love one another through prayer. Uh, let me say this, um, Ruth and I, we're not perfect at it, but usually our prayer points are this, before our meal uh, for dinner, we thank God for the food, that's typically something we do. Uh, before I go to work, I have an empty parking lot that I go to, and, and just for five to 30 minutes, I just try to go ahead and have an opportunity to where I can just pray for the day ahead. God, I thank you for this job. I pray I'd work as if I was working unto you. Please be with Ruth. Keep her safe. Uh, and, and I pray just through the day and my anxieties and my worries and even things I'm excited about. And, and what happens, church, is this. It makes me just consciously aware of God throughout the day. Does that happen all the time? No, it doesn't happen all the time. I wish it did. I wish I had a 100% track record, but I don't. Prayer, church, is a way of which we can abide in Christ. Number two is the church. I love this one. So many people are like, oh, the church, it's so bad. Oh, the church is so wrong. Oh, the church is so corrupt. This is Jesus' idea. It's not my idea. It's not Pastor Al's idea. It's not Pastor Chris's idea. This is Jesus' idea to have the church, to have a place where the people of God gather together and worship and remember him for who he is and all that he's done. The writer of Hebrews, he says this in, in Hebrews chapter 10, I want, I want us to, to take a look at it because I think it says a lot to what, even what we're doing this morning. He says, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. I hope that's happening this morning, church. I hope you're feeling stirred up by the love of God and to love one another and also to good works. Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Some have made a career out of not showing up to church and yet still calling themselves Christians. But encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near, meeting all the more looking towards Jesus coming back. Mercy Fellowship, this is why we're here. This is why we're here. We come here together to worship God. In fact, some of you even here in this room perhaps might have a really low view of church. It doesn't really matter if I show up. It's not that big of a deal. It doesn't really do that much for me in my life. Let me submit this to you. Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus, thought the church was so valuable, so beneficial, so great that he shed his blood for it. Our Lord Jesus saw value in the church that he shed his blood for it. 
And, and there's a big amount of people, church, who claim to be followers of Jesus, particularly in America, and yet you can see from their lives they don't grow in love for God and they don't grow in love for one another. That's something that takes place here, hopefully, as we are gathering, that we are stirring one another up to love and good works. We have, number one, the prayer uh, with prayer. Number two, church helping us abide in Christ. Number three, we have the word. Uh, we've already talked about this, but let me just kind of hit on it again, church. The word, this is a gift that God has given you and me so that we might abide in Christ. As you open the Bible, you get to know who our creator is. You get to see whose image we bear. You get to see why there's sin and brokenness in the world. You, you read the end of it and you get a, a glimpse of, of how it all ends. It all ends around the throne room of Jesus where he's making all things new. This book church has helped people for thousands of years open up the cavities of their soul to deal with anxiety and depression and worry and sorrow. This book is amazing. This book is wonderful. In fact, just a few statistics I want to give to you this morning. It's from a study that was done in 2009. I would say this study that was done shows the supernatural power of the Bible. It's that amazing. Let me go ahead and just tell you what it is. Center of Bible Engagement, they had a study for a couple PhD guys put this together in 2009, and the title is this, Understanding the Bible Engagement Challenge, Scientific Evidence for the Power of Four. Power of Four, what does that mean? Well, they gathered uh, 40,000 people, and what they did was this. They saw that in, if you read your Bible one to three days a week, it doesn't really do too much for your life. Doesn't really change too much. However, if you read your Bible four or more days a week, the, the numbers go off the charts. They are astronomical, the benefits you get if you open your Bible. Let's take a look at them. If so, people who read their Bibles four or more times a week, as opposed to people who read it three or less, feeling lonely drops 30%. Anger issues drop 32%. Bitterness in relationships drops 40%. Alcoholism drops 57%. Sex outside of marriage, it drops 68%. Feeling spiritually stagnant, that drops 60%. Viewing pornography drops 61%. And sharing your faith, it jumps to 200%. And discipling others jumps to 230%. Is that not amazing? Is that not wonderful? Mercy Fellowship, you might come in this morning and you've got a lot of problems that are going on in your life. You might be dealing with some things. You might be going through some hardships. You might be feeling lonely and there might be an array of reasons for why you feel that. But one of the reasons perhaps you might feel that is because you don't open up the word. If your Bible church is covered in dust, what is this? We are talking about, at least with this study, the shows that, hey, this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter, seriously, church, of whether you are a follower of Jesus or even not. If you come in today, Mercy Fellowship, and you struggle to read your Bible, like this, I want this to be a safe place. I want this to be a place where, hey, you, you can go ahead and admit that. I don't read my Bible every day. I can go ahead and say that up front here. Okay? Well, this is a place where we can struggle together, though, and at least make the effort to start opening our Bibles together. In fact, coming up January 18th, uh, Wednesday evenings, we're going to have an equipped class here at the church for both men and women. There's going to be food, and we're going to be opening our Bibles. It's a great opportunity for you to learn what the Bible says and what it's talking about. 
along with that church, we've got stuff like the YouVersion Bible app. It has all these different Bible reading plans. If you're like me and you're busy working around doing construction or you're just on the move all the time, uh, you can have the audio Bible and you go with stuff like that. There are so many different ways, church, of which you can consume the word today. And consuming the word not only gives you incredibly supernatural benefits, I would say, but allows you and I to abide in Christ. Prayer, church, the word. Number four, communion. We take communion every week as a church. And as we take communion, I just want you to be aware of where we get this. Jesus, before he was arrested, um, he has an intimate dinner with his apostles. And in this intimate dinner, he takes the bread and he breaks it, and he gives it around to all of his apostles. After that, he has the wine, and he takes a drink of it, and goes around, and he gives that to the apostles. And he says, hey, when you gather, do this in remembrance of me. And what's happening is this, church. As we gather and as we take communion, we are being reminded of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins. We're being reminded that he took on the cup of God's wrath for our sins so that we could be reconciled back to God. Hopefully, church, when you take communion, I don't know if this happens for you or not, maybe say a little prayer of just gratitude and thanks to God. As you take communion, just be reminded of of who God is and and what he's done for you and, and the lengths to which he's gone to love you. Communion number four. Number five, baptism. If you have yet to be baptized, I encourage you to be baptized. This is a way of just showing your allegiance to Jesus, that you've died to your, self, your old self, and now you live for Christ. But church, how many of you love watching baptisms? I love seeing people get baptized. I, I was a youth pastor in Bothell for a short time, and, and one of the things I would do is that I would end up, after our, my church service got done, I would just go over to Bellevue to a mega church there, and I'd watch them do baptisms. And it was great. It was a way of just me kind of consuming rather than producing all the time. And there was one scene, I'll never forget it, where I was at this church and, and they're doing baptisms and it's just like everyone's crying in the room because of how beautiful it is. It's a picture church of restoration of life. A son walks into the, to the water. He's about 30. He ends up getting baptized. He's crying. The next thing you know, it looks like his sister comes over to the, to the baptism and he gets to baptize his sister. Another beautiful scene right there. One of the deacons who was there helping in the baptism, he gets out. And so it's just the son and the daughter in there. And their old elderly mom comes in and they're all crying together and they get to baptize their mom. And it's just this beautiful story, church, of restoration of life taking place. Whatever might have been in the past, that those old lives are dead. They're now alive in Christ. We even had a guy here a few years ago and his life was just a mess. It was a train wreck. And as he got baptized a few years ago, it was just this beautiful picture and a reminder that God is still at work in our midst. That that his relationship with God was fractured and that got restored. That his relationship with his wife that was fractured and that got restored. Relationship that he didn't even really have with his kids, that got restored. And you get a picture of that in baptism. And I hope for you when you see people get baptized, it stirs your soul. It, It fills you up with the love of God that God is still at work in our midst. Church, through, through prayer, through church, through the word, through communion, and through baptism. These are all ways that God has given us of abiding in Christ. And what is the purpose of abiding in Christ? The Apostle John, he says this to us, so that love might be perfected in us. What does that mean? The technical word for that is this, so that we might be sanctified. So that we might grow to be more like Jesus. 
so that hopefully a few years from now you look more like Christ than you did a few years ago. It just kind of came to my mind now, but I remember hearing from John Newton. He has this famous line where he says, hey, I'm I'm not what I want to be, but I'm not what I once was. And I hope that's your story as well. You look back at your life and you're like, man, I'm not really where I want to be. I'd like to be farther ahead. But man, God's done some stuff in my life and I'm not where I once was. Abiding in him. This whole section, church, that we're talking about, just in this section alone uh, of scripture that we're covering from John, he says the word love 27 times, right? In fact, I think over the entire epistle, it's something around the ballpark of 70 or north of 70. He says it a lot. But I want you to see the trajectory that hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll pick up on, especially in this next section of scripture. He has this, we're defining love, and love is defined by God. After that, once we know and once we grasp that love of God, we, we, we abide in that. We sit in that. And as we sit in that love, then we go ahead and we move on to loving one another. These verses right here, verses 19 through 21. The apostle, he says this. He says, we love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen. Uh, Let me start over. For he who does not love his brother whom he has not seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that whoever loves God must also love his brother. The Apostle John, he's, I think I've already said it, but he's writing to home churches, and most likely he's, he's sharing stories when he goes to these churches of his time and his encounters with Jesus. What an awesome pastor that would have been, right? Sitting on, under the Apostle John, hearing his story and his life about walking with Jesus and being an apostle of Jesus. And there's a lot of different things he picks up on from his gospel, but most likely one of the stories that's being highlighted in this epistle here is the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. If you know the story in John chapter 13, in John's gospel, he goes on to say in the beginning of this, he says that Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. Let's start with that, right? Starting right there, it says, Jesus, knowing that all authority has been given to him, all authority in heaven on earth, his first act in office, if you will, what is he going to do? He's gonna become a servant, he's gonna put on rags, he's gonna get down on his knees, and he's going to wash the feet of his disciples. That is ridiculous. That is the lowest of low positions in that time in Israel. It's one of the dirtiest jobs in the world. The people's feet are caked with dirt from wearing sandals. Perhaps they even have animal feces on them as well. And Jesus, the creator of this world, he's getting down on his knees to wash not only his disciples' feet, church, but even wash the feet of Judas Iscariot, his betrayer. This is a job for nobodies. This is a job for slaves. This is a job for people who, who don't have any place or, or any, uh, any credentials in society. And after Jesus gets done washing the disciples' feet, towards the end of that chapter, he says this, and it should be on the screen, John 13, 34, and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. 
I hope you catch that, church. I hope you see that we have a reactionary faith when it comes to our Lord Jesus. That, that, that God is the first cause, that God is the first mover, and because he reaches out and initiates, because he makes himself known to us, we then in turn react to who God is. And we love, why? Because God has first loved us. God has set the example for us of what love looks like. Now, let me conclude with this, church. This call that we have to love one another, it's a command. And if we're really honest, actually, this morning, loving is hard, right? You're not easy to love, Mercy Fellowship. I'm not easy to love. We're all sinners. We all fall short. C.S. Lewis, he has this quote, and I forgot what book it was, but he says, to forgive means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. It's a good quote. It's awesome. And then the next sentence says, this is hard, period. Right? That's the reality, right? It is hard, church, to love one another. But my hope for all of us is this. When we learn about the love of God and we rest and we abide in that love of God, not moving away from it, but going deeper into it, that the reality would be that we'd be empowered not only from what we know, but by the power of the Holy Spirit to love one another in a way that we cannot otherwise love. And we love people. Why? Because they're easy to love? Not a chance. We love because our Lord Jesus has given us an example as well as a command of what that looks like. And that looks like taking on the role of a servant in sacrifice to the betterment of other people. That's what he shows us. It is not always easy, church, to love people, but we have an example with God because God has so loved this world that he sent his only son so that if you would believe in him, you would have eternal life. Do you know this this morning? If you've heard of the love of God this morning, I encourage you not to move away from it, to move deeper into it, to study it, to understand it, to pray about it, to talk about it amongst yourselves. As we take communion, church, after Garrett gets up here, and we get ready to take communion, be reminded of the cost that it took for Jesus uh, to reconcile you back to God. Pray to God. Thank him for that. If you have yet to be baptized, like I already said, I encourage you to be baptized in obedience to Jesus Christ, that you would show your allegiance to him, that you've died to yourself, and now you're alive in him. Let's pray this morning. <laughs> Father God, I thank you for this morning that we've gotten together. I thank you, Father, for the privilege to gather this morning, knowing and recognizing so many other brothers and sisters in Christ around the world do not have this privilege. I pray, Father, that you would, you would take this idea of, God, your love for us, and you'd move it not only in our minds, but deep into our hearts. I pray, Father, that we would abide in you, and as we abide in you, and as we work at prayer, and opening the word, and attending church, and Father, all these gifts that you've given to us, that we'd grow in this love, not only for you, but love for one another. Father, we are not good at loving one another. We fail at this constantly. I pray for myself, Father, you'd help me to love one another better. I pray for us as a church that hopefully we'd learn to love one another better. God, you're so good to us, you're so good for us. We pray all this in your name. Amen.